Well, I uh, certainly hope that you had a fantastic Christmas, and now we enter into a new year, 2023. I hope uh, your new year is filled with opportunity, joy, expectation, and wonder. And as long as we're wondering, you're probably wondering about the t-shirt, which is a bit outside uh, the normal uniform. Uh, But we are beginning uh, a new series of messages this week called One Step Closer. And throughout these series of messages, there's going to be a question that we're going to ask. And the question, which is on the back, is what's your next step? Now, I know there's some jealousy being aroused because of my shirt. So I've got a few shirts. Anybody want one? A couple? Um, now, it's Saturday night, they told me I couldn't throw it to the back. I'm going to prove them wrong. You ready? And who else? Let's, let's go over here. We didn't get these people over here. Over here. I've got two left. Who's... All right, that's, that's all, sorry. I've been working out. <laughs> so we're entering into a new year. And most of us, as we enter into a new year, we have these ideals, right? This is going to be the year in which I'm going to grow. I've got these goals, going to get a new job. I'm going to change. I'm going to improve myself. I'm going to go to the gym nine times a week. (laughs) And if we're honest, we set our goals or our resolutions, and they often taper rather quickly. I've had a goal. I set the goal in 2021. Then I set it again in 2022. And I've set it once again in 2023. And that goal has been to lose 10 pounds. And I'm still the exact same way I was three years ago because uh, every time I get hungry and should be eating a salad and carrots, I eat a burger. Or I see a bag of M&Ms and I eat the whole thing, the Costco size. So it's, it's like, it's never, it's never going to happen unless I take a next step. I mean, we, we all know this to be true. We all know this to be true so much so that there is, there's a gym in uh, many major cities called the Equinox. And this gym is a high-end gym. And they have this kind of thing they do, this kind of gimmicky shtick. They will not take new members on January 1st. And the reason they won't is they say, because we don't speak January. Which basically they're saying, hey, we want people that are going to be committed, right? But when we take all of this and translate it into a life of faith, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to enter into a new year? Maybe you're saying, this is the year I'm going to grow in my faith. This is the year I'm going to go deeper with God. This is the year everything's going to change. And often we say those things, and what we actually mean is I'm going to learn more stuff about God. Maybe read my Bible more, go to a class or something. But learning more things about God is only part of the faith equation. 
So as I enter into 2023, I'm not entering into 2023 with a goal as much as I am a question. And the question I'm, I'm asking myself in 2023 is, like, why do I keep doing this? Like all this. Why, why, as a pastor, like why, why do I keep serving the church as a pastor? Because if I'm being honest, like being a pastor is weird. It's like a weird job. It's a weird vocation. See, in my, my line of work, I, I am with people in the best moments of their life. Weddings, births, anniversaries. I've got to do some cool things with people. But as a pastor, I'm, I'm also with people in the worst moments of their life. Death, illness, divorce. As a pastor, I just have some bizarre things that happen. Like a, f- a few weeks ago, I was the pastor on call in the evening. And when you're the pastor on call in the evening here, what that means is if you have something that happens and you need a pastor, you can call the church and it will say, if you need the pastor on call, press, I don't remember what number it is, press five, and it will forward the call to the pastor on call cell phone. So I got a call, it went off, and I get nervous when my phone goes off because that means something's probably happened to somebody. And I got the call and I picked it up and on the other end was a Muslim trying to convert me to Islam. Seriously, true story. And I said, hey, sir, we're, you know, we're, we're probably going to disagree. So I, I hung up and he kept calling back. And I kept answering because I'm the pastor on call and told me I'm going to go to hell and all this. That was just bizarre. I had another scenario happen because I do speak quite frankly or quite openly about uh, some of my struggles with anxiety and OCD that I've had for years. And I spoke one time about that and someone showed up uh, to explain to me that um, what I have is of the devil, and they had a chart for me explaining why psychology is satanic. And, and I said, you know, my wife's a therapist, right? And they said, oh, oh, oh you know, it doesn't matter. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that was a good use of my time. As a pastor, I received the greatest of compliments and the most offensive of complaints. So why do I do this? Well, the answer, at least for me, is found in a passage of the Bible, which is a great place to start. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, the Apostle Paul is writing, and this is what he says. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, let me give you the broader context here. The book of Galatians is a letter that was written to a church in a city in Israel called Galatia. And in this particular church, there were some issues that were happening, which is why, in part, this letter was written. The issue in the church at Galatia uh, centered around... um, an idea that called legalism. And basically what was happening in this particular church was there were some in the church that were saying that in order to truly be a a Christian, you have to follow all of the law of Moses and all of the teaching of Christ. And and Paul comes back and says, no, 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 it's it's because of the cross, it's grace. And so Galatians is a very emotion-filled letter. And in this letter, The Apostle Paul's goal is not to be liked, although I I don't think he wants to be disliked. His goal is not to be applauded or celebrated, but rather his goal 
is that Christ is deeply formed in the people that he cares about. Now, to say it a different way, the Apostle Paul is concerned about making disciples. Now, the word disciple or the word discipleship is a word that comes to us from Judaism. In Judaism, the teacher of Judaism is called a rabbi, and a rabbi will gather disciples around him or followers that will become his students. And those students will start to think like the rabbi and do the things that the rabbi does. So we have Jesus who emerges on the scene and Jesus is considered a rabbi and he starts gathering followers whom he calls disciples. Now keep in mind the, the word disciple is used in the New Testament roughly 300 times while the word Christian is only used three times. It's used in the book of Acts. It's never used by Jesus. It's never used by Jesus' followers, but it is used by outsiders describing a bunch of people who act the same way. The word Christian literally means little Christ. And so Christians were called Christians because they acted like Jesus. So the Bible is not very concerned with my self-improvement, although getting better is always a good thing. The Bible is much more concerned with transformation. That's the Apostle Paul's concern when he writes, I want to see Christ formed in you. And there's an intensity to Paul's words, and an intensity so much so that he compares his work to childbirth, which I think is dangerous for a man to use as a comparison, by the way. I've never given birth to a child. I've, I've been to two, and they are intense, right? I've been a follower this year of Jesus for 32 years. And over the 32 years of my life, I've been transformed and I'm being transformed. Not because I'm older and wiser, I know that's true. But I've been transformed at the level and the core of my, my soul. I keep doing what I do because my deepest desire is that Christ is formed in you. Like I care deeply about this church, I love you, I do. And I want, each one of you to experience the grace of God that I know you can experience in the midst of all things. I keep doing what I do because I, I want you to live a spirit-led life. I want you to have a Christ-centered existence that begins with salvation in Christ. The Apostle Paul says salvation comes through Christ alone because of what he did for us on the cross. But what we also have to understand is it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with salvation. Because the next calling is the call and a commitment to discipleship, to becoming like Jesus, to being led by the Holy Spirit. And from that place, I have a desire and a passion to serve others, not because I have to, but because I want to. So Christianity then really is a faith of being, a child of God, recipient of grace, beloved of the Lord, but also a faith of doing. And all this is captured by the word faith. Now, I think faith is a misunderstood word. There's a, a famous film, I think it's one of the classic films of all time. It's called The Princess Bride. You ever seen it? Anybody seen The Princess Bride? If you haven't, it's a classic, you gotta go see it. So in The, in the Princess Bride, if you've seen it, there's a, a, a character, his name is Vinzini, he's a Sicilian, he's my people. 
And he keeps using the word inconceivable to describe situations, and he's often using it out of context. So finally, another character named Inigo Montoya looks at Vincini and says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. When we use the word faith, I don't always think that word means what we think it means. It's a misunderstood word. We say things like, you just gotta have faith. But what does that actually mean? See, I have this vision in my head from when I was a kid. And I, I, it's amazing what we remember when we were children, but when I was small, we had a Chevy Vega. Anybody own a Chevy Vega? When you, and we still have a Chevy Vega that runs. We had this Vega and I grew up in Buffalo, so it was really cold in the winter and it would have a really hard time starting in the winter. And I just have this image of my mom in the Vega, turning the ignition, pumping the gas and saying, come on girl, come on girl, come on girl, as if she was willing it by faith to start. Is that faith? Not really. Faith has a movement and a flow to it. And biblically speaking, the word faith, it, it doesn't just mean belief, but it means trust. Specifically in a person, specifically in Christ, and living a life that supports that trust. Which is why James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, faith without works, well, it's actually dead. It's a, it's a dead faith. One of the values that we have as a church is taking next steps with God. So, so as we enter into 2023, are we taking a next step toward God? Or are we stuck? Or maybe even taking steps away from God. Not that we can leave his presence and proximity, but we can certainly walk away from connection. So what then does it mean to be a person of faith? Well, to answer that question, I want to turn to a character from the Bible named Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was a fisherman, and Peter could be a bit impulsive in his actions. We see it all through the Gospels, particularly towards the end, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified, and he's praying, and the Romans come to take him away, and Peter impulsively sees these Romans coming, takes his sword and swings it at the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. Now, I don't think he intentionally cut off his ear. I think he was a bad aim. I think Peter was actually swinging for the head. The way that the scripture says it literally is that he took it and he swung and he hit the ear and it came off and Jesus reaches down and puts the ear back on and heals him. Now, that would be enough for me. Like if I was there, I'd be like, okay, you are the son of God. I mean, if you can do that, right? But there's another story that involves Peter and a boat. In the gospel of Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has just completed a miracle. He's been preaching and teaching, and there's 5,000, well, the scripture says 5,000 men, which means there were probably more like 20,000 people. And Jesus has been teaching them, and now it's evening, and they're hungry, and the disciples tell Jesus he should send them away so they can go buy some food, and Jesus says, no, you feed them. And the disciples are like, what do you mean feed them? What, what, what do you mean feed them? There's thousands of people here. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they bring this little boy over and well, he's got some fish and some bread. So basically he's got a Lunchable, right? <laughs> and Jesus takes, takes it 
and he works a miracle and feeds, feeds thousands of people and then I think he's just tired so he sends his disciples in a boat. Verse 22 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. Buffeted by the waves because of the wind was against it, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. He said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down and those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now the story itself takes place on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. If you're going with me in November to, to Israel, we're going to take a boat right on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is, a, is an interesting body of water because it's surrounded by mountains. So when the cold air comes off the mountains and hits the warm air coming off of the water, uh, it can produce harsh conditions on that sea rather quickly. So the scripture says this is happening and that the boat is buffeted, which literally means it's tormented, that the boat is tormented by the waves. Rembrandt uh, painted a famous picture. Um, and this is kind of the image I get of the Sea of Galilee uh, in the day of, of Jesus. And so his disciples are in the boat and they've been rowing against the waves and the scriptures say they've been doing so for about nine hours. Now that's a lot of rowing. Nine hours are getting nowhere. I mean, the Sea of Galilee at its widest point is only seven miles across. And so they're rowing and they're rowing and they're tired and they're frustrated and they're wet. Have you ever had to fight against a storm, against weather, and it was exhausting? I drove once from, from Nebraska to Missouri and I wound up in the middle of a blizzard. It was a whiteout blizzard, the kind you can barely see, the taillights of the car in front of you on the highway the kind where you're going 30 miles an hour at, at best. And, and I'm just white knuckling it and driving. And it's the kind of storm that logic would tell you to pull over, find a hotel and wait it out. But I was young and dumb and said I could do this. And I just went for hours and hours and hours and hours. And by the time I finished my journey, I was so tired, so frustrated, so exhausted from fighting the storm. So the disciples, they're in that place. They're exhausted from fighting the storm. They're tired, and then Jesus shows up, but Jesus is not respecting the natural boundary of things. Because typically, human beings don't walk on water. 
Now, in Jesus' day, there was a belief in a spirit called a lilin, and a lilin was a night spirit that could come out and walk on water, and so the disciples thought this is that. And verse 27, Jesus said to them, no, 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 take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, that, that phrase, it is I, when you pull it from the original translation of the Bible, it literally means I am which is a nod to Exodus chapter three, in which God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and says, I am who I am. Jesus is walking in the water and he's saying, I am who I am, I am. The same Yahweh that spoke thousands of years ago from the burning bush, that, that's me, I am. So in that moment, as Jesus is walking on the water, Peter experiences the intersection of faith, the intersection of being, and doing. He says, if it's you, or, or more accurately, since it is you, please enable me to do what you're doing because you're a rabbi and I am one of your disciples and I want to do what you do. See, taking one step closer to Jesus is a movement of faith that does require action. There are several actions expressed by Peter in this story. The first is that he, his faith is expressed as trust. When Jesus asks the question, do you believe in me? He's not simply asking, do you confirm my existence, but do you trust me? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. In other words, I trust you enough that if it really is you, that I'll be able to step out of this boat and walk on the water. I don't think Peter is expecting all of his fears to be alleviated. Rather, his desire, I think, is for transcendence. He's not trying to be Jesus. He just wants to be with Jesus. He wants to stand in that unbounded place. And so faith is not just believing in something. It's believing in someone. It's trusting in someone. Having faith is not convincing ourselves that we're convinced of something. Years ago, I, I took a bunch of teenagers on a ropes course. And if you've ever been on a ropes course, you know there's a series of activities that you work through. And one of the activities we worked through was called the leap of faith. And the leap of faith was uh, an activity in which they put you in a harness connected to ropes. And there was a platform in a tree 30 feet up. You climbed a ladder up the tree, you stood on this little platform, and then you were supposed to jump from the platform to a bar that was hanging from another tree. I think it was five or eight feet out. Now, are there, there are some things that I can assure you. 30 feet looks very different from the top than it does the bottom. So the first guy to go up was one of our adult sponsors, and he went up, and he was kind of one of these macho guys. And he gets to the top, he looks down, and he goes, oh no. And he turns around, and he, he's hugging the trunk of the tree because he is not gonna jump off the platform. And I'm thinking, what a baby, just jump, man. You're attached to a rope. So now it's my turn, they put me in the harness, put me on the rope, and I climb up, and I get to the top, and it's, a long way down. And I've got a decision to make. And the decision is, do I actually trust the rope? Not do I believe that it can hold me, but do my actions say that I believe that the rope can hold? Because these weren't like, these weren't like Walmart ropes, right? These are 
These are rope, these are rock climbing ropes. I mean, it's gonna hold. There's a guy in the bottom belaying, the rope's gonna hold. So finally, I jumped, completely missed the bar. I'm not very tall. I mean, I make the bar three feet, gosh. And, <laughs> and I missed it and I dangled in the air, held by the ropes until they lowered me on the ground. The only reason I could jump was because I did in fact trust the rope. Peter's choice is this, is he willing to trust Jesus more than he trusts the boat? Because here's what I know about good boats. Good boats float. In a storm, in most scenarios, you are safer in the boat than you are in the water. Reason would tell me to stay in the boat if it's currently floating. Reason also tells me that people don't walk on water. It's safer in the boat. And yet in this moment, Peter's faith is expressed in his practice. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. See, Peter wants to be closer to Jesus, so there's, there's a functionality to all this. And, and the functionality is, in order to express that faith, Peter just has to take one small step, right? One small step in proximity, but it's one huge step in practicality. See, when Peter stepped out of the boat, he was taking a risk. And this is what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. Sometimes it's simply a willingness to take a risk, which is hard for me because I'm fairly risk adverse. I usually play it safe. And yet as I enter into 2023, another question I ask myself was, what is one risky step I can take that will draw me closer to Jesus? What is one risky step you're longing to take, but you know it will take you closer to Jesus? What we also learn from Peter is that, that faith is always a progression. It's never perfection. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Peter's faith certainly motivated him, but for some reason, it didn't sustain him. The word doubt means trying to go in two different directions at the same time. I mean, I think we all know about motivated faith. We all are motivated to do something. We have the best of intentions. Like, for instance, last year, we, we published these Bible reading guides, which we have again. And then the first weekend in January, I got up and I said, I've got these Bible reading guides. And if you follow this one, you'll read through the New Testament in a year. If you'll follow, read this one, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. And they were gone. People were taking them. Yeah, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And then March rolls around. <laughs> You're a little behind. So I, I decided, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. So I got my guide and I'm reading through the Bible. And I'm a little behind, actually. Um, I should be done, and I'm still in December. But one of our staff looked at me and said, yeah, nice for you, I'm still in March. <laughs> but that's okay. Because a sustaining faith says, that's okay, I'm gonna keep going anyway. Peter is the living example of 
progression, not perfection. See, he, he steps on the water, he's walking on the water, takes his eyes off Jesus and he sinks. But see, Peter's life is filled with up and ups and downs. There's, there's one moment in a story where Peter makes this great confession of faith. Jesus, you are the son of God. And then a moment later, when Jesus is going to describe his crucifixion, Peter says, not so, Lord, never, that's never gonna happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you've now become a tool of the devil. In another moment, Peter goes up with Jesus on a mountain with, with like the close three and there's this transfiguration and Jesus is glorified and some of the prophets show up and Peter is so baffled that he bumbles through saying, I'm gonna make some tents for you guys even though you're dead. I... Then in another story, Jesus says, Peter, cast your, cast your pole into the water. You're gonna pull out a fish and there's gonna be some money in the mouth so you can pay your taxes. And he does it and uh, the fish comes out and there's money in it. And, and moments later, he's haggling with Jesus over how many times he should forgive his brother. In the final hours with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Peter falls asleep. And in the end, when Jesus is crucified, Peter says, Lord, I will never deny you. I will go down with the ship. And not only does he deny Jesus once, he denies him three times. Peter's life is certainly one of, of progression, not perfection, because in the end, the transformation that I desire for myself and for you happens to Peter. Peter becomes the leader of the Christian church. Jesus said, on you, Peter, my rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter became a leader in the church and not only a leader, but he wrote two books of the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And then when Peter was confronted for his faith at risk of death, he willingly handed his life over. He was crucified and legend tells us that not only was he crucified, but because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same way of his Lord, he was crucified upside down. The same Peter who couldn't stay awake, who sunk in the water and denied Jesus three times, is the same Peter who led the church, wrote part of the Bible, and gave his life for what he believed. So what will motivate, but also sustain us? What is our one next step? And how do we view the progression and the unfolding of our life? Because quite frankly, in, in Western culture, we, we view the progression of life like a ladder. And we're always trying to climb the ladder, one rung at a time. And we have this goal and we're climbing the ladder and with the intention of reaching the top. And then we get to the top, well now what? When we get to the top, there's often more questions than there are answers. I've met all my goals, now what do I do? See, I don't, I don't think a ladder is a good metaphor for this thing we call life. I think the idea of a path is much better, especially for the spiritual life. Because on a path, a path which is filled with, with curves and twists and turns and Sometimes when you're on a path, if you go on a hike, you find yourself going in circles and 
Got to get yourself turned around again. See, the great thing about a path is if you put one step in front of the other, you'll eventually get to where you want to be. So what would it look like this year to take one step towards Jesus? And even when we falter, he's going to be there to pull us up. My, there's a painting by, by an artist named Sung Young Kim, and he paints this picture of Jesus reaching into the water to pull up Peter. And I love this image to describe this story because if you look at Jesus' face, there's almost like this half grin on his face. And I love it because sometimes I think we think that Peter looks at, Jesus looks at Peter and goes, Peter, you idiot, what, what's wrong with you? But I don't think that's how it went down. I think it's more like Jesus said, Peter, you're being Peter again. Come on, buddy, help you up. And I think that's how Jesus treats us. So what would it look like to take one step towards Jesus? Maybe you have a step in mind. Maybe you know what that one risky step is. And if you don't, we've done some things to help you. In the Northbrook Life magazine, which is all over the lobby, there's this tear out. And in this tear out, we've identified a whole bunch of steps. Not expecting you to do all of them, but maybe pick one of them if you can't think of your own, and use this as a guide to take one actionable step of faith towards Jesus. Because maybe, just maybe, this is your year to get out of the boat. My prayer, oh God, for, for our church is that Christ would be formed in us. I'm not interested in religious entertainment. Not interested in putting on a show. My deepest heartfelt desire is that Christ would be formed in us and that we would become more like you, even in all of our imperfections. That this year, Lord, we would take a step, some of us a risky step of faith that would take us closer to you. That may look like so many different things for us. I'm thankful that my salvation is secure in you. But as a disciple, I know that I put one foot in front of the other. I keep walking towards you in order to become like you. That's my prayer for this church, oh God. Amen.